0: Thanks for listening to this audio sermon from the Pulpit of Covenant Presbyterian Church in Oak Ridge, Tennessee, a congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. You can learn more about us by visiting our website, www.covenant-pca.com.
1: Turn with me to Micah chapter 4. Be looking at verses 9 through 13, that next Next section of oracle, uh, the Lord has given to His Old Testament people in the midst of their tribulations, singing the Psalms. This not this past week now, but two weeks ago, uh, in the uh, second leg of uh, or the second conference that I did, uh, part of what they uh, they were hoping to accomplish there was to introduce the churches there to the singing of psalms. That's a rather uh, omitted uh, part of our, our, the singing in Brazil. And um, and so it was, uh, it was great uh, enjoyment to sit and, and listen to the folks as they were uh, helping to instruct some of the people in, who had not uh, been singing psalms to do that and... Uh, 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 as some of the tunes they chose were, were very singable and others were not. And uh, that's always the struggle, when, especially when you're introducing uh, new hymns and psalms. But, uh, but they sang, uh, well, hearing you tonight reminded me of that. Let's read together God's Word, Micah 4, 9 and following. Now, why do you cry aloud? Is there no king in you? Has your counselor perished, that pain seized you like a woman in labor? Writhe and groan, O daughter of Zion, like a woman in labor. for now you shall go out from the city and dwell in the open country. You shall go to Babylon. There you shall be rescued. There the Lord will redeem you from the hand of your enemies. Now many nations are assembled against you, saying, Let her be defiled, let our eyes gaze upon Zion. But they do not know the thoughts of the Lord. They do not understand His plan, that He has gathered them as sheaves to the threshing floor. Arise and thresh, O daughter of Zion. For I will make your horn iron, and I will make your hooves bronze. You shall beat in pieces many peoples, and shall devote their gain to the Lord, their wealth to the Lord of the whole earth. May the Lord give us great joy in hearing his word, being reminded that his word will always remain with his people. Father, we thank you for your word, and we ask you now to strengthen us, to help straighten our backs and lift our heads, to illumine our minds, that we might be alert for the next few minutes to hear what you have to say to us, and we will give you thanks for it, and we will leave this place rejoicing that you have spoken to us, and that you've spoken. In a way that we not only can hear, but in a way that changes our thinking, renewing our minds, and changes our, our love. That our love would be more for you, the God who owns all things, the God who, to whom all things belong. And we pray this in the name of our Savior Jesus. Amen. Well, these oracles, as we've seen already working through Micah, uh, are like something like a roller coaster ride. You know, you, you have one that, where the Lord speaks and here's what he's going to do. He's, he, he is going to deal with them harshly for their disobedience. After all, he's, he's God, he's holy, he's faithful to his word. His word, he has stated from the beginning, you obey me. I will bless you. You disobey me, I will curse you. And the people obey and things are good for a while. And they disobey. In fact, that's, that's pretty much, you know, the book of Judges pretty much summarizes human history, doesn't it? Sort of the, the rise and fall. Men loving God, trusting Him. And then off they go, doing what's right in their own eyes. Because we tend toward pride, and and so when things are good, the tendency isn't it to think, well, you know, everything's so good, I must be doing okay, and I'll just, I will just keep doing what I'm doing. And suddenly, I has the I has become the problem, and I'm doing what I think is right, and here here it goes again, and the pendulum swing, and and God deals with His people, thankfully, very graciously. And because of his covenant, he comes and he, he does good things for his people. And here we have another one of those occasions. Uh, the Lord has said he will rescue his people. Even as, as recent as back in verse 6, in that day declares the Lord, I will assemble the lame and gather those who have been driven away. And those whom I have afflicted and the lame I will make the remnant. and Those who were cast off a strong nation. We saw that. We see how God's still doing that, growing His church, making a strong nation, a strong people from every tribe tongue. And though it may appear from, from our perspective, from our angle, looking at those mountains. You remember the last time we were together, we talked about the, the mountain range and how that you, you see. And all of a sudden, it becomes hard sometimes to see whether that mountain is close or far away whether that's the one that you're going to come to next or next or next or next. And, um, and, and we considered that last time that all these prophecies, all these words spoken by the prophet, some will come to pass sooner than others in the life of God's people. Ultimately, of course, in that final day at the consummation when... When Christ comes and the new heavens and new earth are established, but uh, with that said, uh, we we are we're reminded that uh, while he's just finished saying to the people in verse six that there is going to be this remnant, there's going to be this great restoration, and and then in verse nine he turns back to uh, so there's no king, and you have no counselors and. Uh, Things are bad. It's like a woman in labor. There's a lot of pain, a lot of suffering. Remember, Sennacherib is at the gate. The Assyrians have come so close. The northern kingdom has fallen. The southern kingdom kingdom is hanging on, but only because of, of the mercy and grace of God. And he gives them an extended period of time before finally in 586, Babylon comes knocking and scatters them. And so and so we have the Lord warning them. Calvin says he did not, Micah, did not intend to overturn what he had before stated. But as the minds of the godly might have fainted amidst so many changes, the prophet here gives them support that they might continue firm in their faith. In other words, this hope that he gives them, the Lord's going to rescue you was not intended to overturn what he just said, that they're gonna be bad times, they're gonna be hard times, but it's simply to give them hope in the middle of these hard times. And sometimes that's just what we need, isn't it? We need those, that, that little word of hope that, that God is on his throne, God is in control. And uh, we need that, that one to point us back to where we need to be pointed in the middle of the tribulations and the trials, the difficulties of life, Uh, have our heads turned back and our eyes fixed back on Christ. You know, there's there's probably in human literature uh, no no book better at, at this story than Pilgrim's Progress by John Bunyan. How often is Pilgrim off the way? You know, he bears veers off this way, veers off that way to the, to the slew of despond and to the city of destruction and to, you know, seeking this instruction and that instruction. And then God sends along faithful or hopeful or evangelist and says, you know, what are you doing here? Didn't I say, and Christian will say, yeah, you're right. You said, okay, well, let's, let's move back toward the path. And so by God's grace, he's brought back into the path. And so here we see this very same thing. One of the lessons we, we learn from, from these minor prophets and, and it's here in Micah is, um, is something that we touched on this morning in the second point just briefly. That is, uh, the challenges that come to the church uh, create a, a considerable amount of tension. There is tension in the Christian life. There's tension in, in, in uh, that, that I, you know, certainly we could say it's divine tension because God's the orchestrator of all things. Uh, he's the one that... Governs and directs and upholds, guides all things from the greatest to the least. We we rehearse that from our our confession and catechisms concerning providence. But but uh, but in in so in that in when we even when we veer off the trail and we we because of sin are off the path, uh, God God intends there to be uh, tension there so that so that we're constantly being pulled back uh, to where we should be. I want us to just notice the tension that's built into this, this situation here from Micah's hearers. Uh, it's expressed in verse 9. Why do you cry aloud? Is there no king in you? Has your counselor perished? And the answer to all of those is Yes. Yes, there is no king. Yes, there are no godly counselors, save Micah. They're not listening to him. Has has pain seized you? The answer is yes. Pain has seized you. And then he says, cry. Why do you cry aloud? Why are you crying? Calvin explains it this way. He says, Since the whole church derived, as it were, its life from the safety of its king, the faithful could not be otherwise than filled with amazement when the kingdom was upset and abolished, for the hope of salvation was taken away. Is there then not a king among you? And have your counselors perished? The fact is, their earthly king was not among them. Their counselors had perished, and because they had put their trust in men and horses and chariots, They were dismayed. And that will always be the case when we take our eyes off King Jesus and and look to our own abilities and our own ways. And so the tension there is that, okay, we know what God said. We know that He said He'll be with His people always, that He'll never leave us or forsake us. And yet, when sin is, is rampant among us, it appears that he has. And so there's this, there's this struggle in us. And then, so, so the, the, the prophet sets the tension. He says, here's the problem. Here's the tension point for you. You're, you're crying. You have a God. And he said, if you will trust me, I will take care of all these things. But you haven't. And then he says, so, so there's tension. You, you don't have a king, and you depend on a king. Uh, you don't have counselors. They've perished. You, you're just like a woman in the throes of labor. And then we see their fears are confirmed. Writhe and groan, O daughter of Zion, like a woman in labor. For now you shall go out from the city and dwell in the open country. You shall go to Babylon. Now, as I said, that doesn't take place immediately. And that, no doubt, that reason for that fact that they didn't immediately get put out of Jerusalem. Some people probably looked and said, well, you know, it hasn't happened yet. Isn't that what what they say? Peter speaks of this in, in his epistle. We've been hearing this all of our life. Christ is going to come again. And here it's been years and years, even at that time they were saying this, in Peter's day. Think about now when people respond to us when we say Christ is going to come again. He's going to come in might and power. He's going to, he's going to deal justly with the unbelievers and He's going to deal mercifully and graciously with the believers. there would be no mention of sin on their part. And He's going to, he's going to establish His kingdom the new heavens and new earth forever and ever, and people say, "You know, I've read history, and people have been saying this for two thousand years now, and it hasn't happened." And so, Peter says, "But remember this: God doesn't operate on our time schedule. The day is like a thousand years to God." It time he's outside of time he's eternal and so it doesn't it doesn't matter that it's been 100 years or 500 years or 1500 years or 2000 years the truth is Christ will come again these people no doubt were sitting there saying okay God's promised uh and he's, he's threatened, and, and we've heard all the threats, and yet, you know, things seem okay. Yes, there is the, the, the oppression, but that's backed off. And, and so we, we see this time from 07, 701 until 586 where they live in relative peace and prosperity. But these words of God are still hanging over them. And people are saying, well, it hasn't happened maybe that was just for a few people and maybe, maybe that, that threat was to a few people and they have died off and that threat's over with. But here Micah comes back and says, no, you can't lose the tension. The tension is that you will dwell in the open country and you shall go to Babylon and the day is not fixed in your mind, but it's fixed in God's mind. And so while you may not see it, it's going to happen. Finally, Micah brings the tension to its fullness with these words of hope. At the end of verse 10, there shall, there in Babylon, there you shall be rescued, there the Lord will redeem you from the hand of your enemies. Listen, uh, listen to what our confession says. Because we need to, need to reckon with this, just like the people of this day did. It would have been interesting and, and perhaps difficult for them to think about, okay, we're going to be sent into exile, but we're going to be rescued. Uh, it, it seems that God has, has removed His hand from us for a while. And when this happens... When this happens in 586, um, it's, it's, you know, radical. God's hand is gone. What He has withheld up until that time is now taking place full force. And they could have very easily said, why? Why is God doing this? Well, the, the easy answer is, well, because we sinned. But there's, there's another part to the answer, isn't there? Not just because... They sinned. I mean, we sin regularly and God doesn't send us off to Babylon. We sin often and God doesn't just put us out in the open country to fend for ourselves. But sometimes, just like He did with the people here, sometimes He does with us as well, doesn't He? Our confession speaks to this. Chapter 28, listen as I read, it says, True believers may have the assurance of their salvation, divers' ways shaken. In other words, in a lot of different ways, shaken. Diminished and intermitted, as by negligence and preserving of it, by falling into some special sin which wounds the conscience and grieves the spirit, by some sudden or vehement temptation. Now, all those are things we do. That causes our fellowship with God to be to be disturbed. But now listen to the next. True believers may have the assurance of their salvation, divers way shaken. Now you can imagine these people, the people of God in the Old Testament, they must have their assurance that God was a covenant faithful God and that He wouldn't desert them must have surely been shaken in times like this. Because from all human appearances, it seems like He's not there. He's not doing for them. And the fact is, God can remain faithful to His covenant and withdraw His presence from His people. And that's exactly what our confession says, that we may have our assurance shaken by God's withdrawing the light of His countenance and suffering even such as fear Him to walk in darkness and have no light. This is one of God's ways of getting our attention to saying, you're not living like you're supposed to be. You're not living by faith. You're walking on the edge. You're pushing the envelope. You're trying to serve two masters. And so I am going to withdraw my countenance, my hand. And all of a sudden, God's people, it appears, and it appears to the world perhaps, that God has not kept His word, that He's not been faithful. But in fact He is being faithful. This is form of discipline. And Hebrews, later on from the passage we read just a few minutes ago, the book of Hebrews tells us that just like a good father on this earth will discipline his children to bring them back into line. And sometimes that discipline is what? I've known of parents having to do some pretty severe things like just Stop supporting the child because this, the support the child is receiving for, for college education or whatever they're using for ungodly things. And so the parent has to just withdraw from the child and let the child go it on its own and see where it will land. Is that bad? Is that wrong? Is that an unloving father that, w- that would cut off funds for the college student that's not using them properly? No, that's a loving father and mother that would do that. And so our God will withdraw from us. Because we can misuse his good gifts, can't we? We can, we can misuse the good things he gives us. And so our confession, very perceptive of who God is and, and who we are as sinners and how God deals with his people, says that God may for a time. But listen to what it says. Yet are they, God's people, Never so utterly destitute of that seed of God and life of faith, that love of Christ and the brethren, that sincerity of heart and conscience of duty, out of which, by the operation of the Spirit, this assurance may in due time be revived. And by the which, in the meantime, they are supported from utter despair. So when God sends them off in 586 into exile, there remains among them that remnant who who have that seed of God, that faith, that little little weak faith that it may have been, that they they remain faithful, and we read about them, don't we, in the book of Jeremiah and the book of Daniel. So Micah says, "Here's here's the tension. You have no king. You have no godly counselor." You are going to writhe and and groan like a woman in labor. But you're going to be rescued. And surely the people listening said, Oh, Micah, what are you talking about? Which is it? Is God going to be faithful to us or isn't He? And Micah just leaves it there. You're going to suffer. You're going to be rescued. And then... And then he turns in verse 11 to what God, what we ought to be thinking about God and what they ought to be thinking about God. So from the tensions of the sinful people to the, to the thoughts of the sovereign Savior here, now many nations are assembled against you, saying, let her be defiled and let her eyes gaze upon Zion. In other words, we're going to take it, we're going to drag them out here in the wilderness, we're going to turn them around, and we're going to say, there, there's your Zion. Look at it. It's ours now. We're going to use it for what we want to use it for. But, verse 12 says, don't you love that little word? You know, it doesn't matter whether it's English three letters or or Greek two letters or... Whatever other buts are in other languages, it's a beautiful word. How often we see it. We saw it this morning. We see it again tonight. We see Paul using it over and over but God, but God. And here, Micah, but they do not know the thoughts of the Lord. Who's he talking about? The nations those people who are going to come against His people, who are going to stand against His people, or who are going to be, be bringing great pain upon His people. And by the way, they can only do that because God decreed it and because God arranges it. He's using them as a, as a means to accomplish His good purposes for His people, and that is to bring them back to faith, to bring them back to obedience. To bring them to repentance. And so they think, these nations, these people, the people we saw this morning who challenged the church, they think they're the ones doing it for their gain and for their profit and for their good name. And yet it's God who's doing it. He's using them. Because they don't know the thoughts of the Lord. They do not understand His plan that he has gathered them as sheaves to the threshing floor. They think, the opponents of Israel, the opponents of the church today think, that they're conquering us, they're discouraging us for their gain, for their good. And Micah speaks here for God and says, No, they're they're actually doing all this for my glory and for the good of my people. So the people will rage against us. They did against Israel. They will against the church. Isn't that we read about this? Read about this in Psalm two. Uh, why do the nations rage? And then the answer is, He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. He will speak to them in His wrath. He will terrify them in His fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. See, the people had, had forgotten that the king that they didn't have only represented the king they did have. The king of glory of Psalm 24. King Jesus, the one who would come in the fullness of time. And so while they didn't have that king on the throne to fix their eyes. They had a king in heaven to whom they could look. But they'd lost, they'd lost that. In the conferences I did in, in Brazil, it was on the doctrine of the church, and, and one, of the, one of the lectures I gave was on the headship of Christ and reminding the people like I, I do you often that we have a king whose head over his church who will not fail us, while this this elder and the elders of this church may surely fail you, because we're fallible men. We're sinners. Our king in heaven will not. And so we don't ever put men on pedestals. We don't ever put men in in such a place that their falling off the horse, so to speak, causes the whole church to go into disarray and the people here had no king, and they, they didn't know what to do. They didn't look to the right place. So there is a king on the throne. So God says, uh, there will be the people who will rage against you, but that's, that's okay. I can take care of that. And then he turns from telling them this, this will be a reality. People will rage against you. They will assemble against you. And then he contrasts in verse 12, as I said, they do not know the thoughts of the Lord. He has decreed that these people, and it doesn't matter whether it's from this general epoch, the Assyrians... The Medes and Persians, the Babylonians, the Greek to come later, the Romans to come later, it doesn't matter who the opponents are, God assembles them to crush them. Now, When you read this, he's gathered them as sheaves to the threshing floor, and then he calls out to Zion, to the people of God, arise and thresh, O daughter of Zion. I will make your horn iron, and I will make your hooves bronze. You shall beat in pieces many peoples and shall devote their gain to the Lord, their wealth to the Lord of the whole earth. This is a message that people don't like. This is one of the reasons people don't like the Bible, because of the hard sayings in the Bible, and particularly the hard sayings about God bringing destruction upon His enemies. And just as much, they don't like the fact that God says, we often are involved in bringing destruction upon the enemies. Israel's called upon here to rise up and thresh, to destroy, to conquer. We're told in the New Testament to take every thought captive, We are to be conquerors. We're told in Romans that we are more than conquerors. Now, we know, too, that in the Old Testament, we have very clear picture, very vivid pictures of God's people in a militaristic way going forth and conquering. Then our Lord Jesus comes, the one who conquered all, and he says to his disciples, we're not any longer people of the sword." Put your swords away. We're people of the Word and of the Spirit. Our, our victories will be had as the church of the living God when we wield the sword of the Spirit. We're told in Hebrews that it's sharper than a two edged sword the Word of God, with the Spirit applying it to the hearts and souls. So we need to leave. We need to leave the destructive part in the hands of God, trusting Him. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord, knowing that He will do those kinds of things. To Ananias and Sapphira, for instance. But knowing that He's called us to to put forth the Word of God with prayer, asking for the Spirit's the Spirit's power to carry that word and to conquer souls and hearts, knowing that when hearts and souls are conquered, neighborhoods will be cleaned up. Those gangs that we thought were physical enemies under the power of the gospel, they'll be changed. We won't have to worry about the police taking care of gangs when the gospel gets into the hearts of the gang members. So we preach God's word, we proclaim His word, and, and we trust Him. To deal with those who don't receive it and we, we rejoice with those and for those who, who by God's grace do receive the gospel and are changed. We're to arise and thresh in that sense. God has promised to make us strong for the work. He's promised to, to make us able for the work. Because you see, everything is, 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 is the Lord's. Kuyper was right. Every square inch is his. And we're to be about conquering by the preaching of the gospel. And God knows the parts of the world he needs to exercise his wrath and vengeance and deal with. We'll trust him to do that in his good time. Calvin, Calvin says... All of this certainly speaks to a time when, when the Jews, when the Jews were resettled and 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 they had for times peace because of of God putting them back in their places and they were to, were to exercise uh, this kind of kind of authority and power. But he says uh, the the. This takes place whenever God stretches forth His hand to the faithful and suffers not the ungodly to exercise their cruelty as they wish. Don't we believe that? That God, God by His restraining Spirit, stops cruelty at times. It's unexplainable why things can be stopped. And yet God does it. Calvin says He just exercises his, his power, and he stops it. Yea, when he makes them humbly to supplicate the faithful. This happens in the world as it's written of Christ, Thy enemy shall lick the earth, quoting Psalm 72, 9. But then Calvin says this. Again, we're back to this mountain range. Now, I was reminded of the mountain ranges again this, just this past Tuesday, flying over from Charlotte to Knoxville. And you know, when you drive Pelissippi toward Knoxville and you look straight ahead, it looks like there's one big mountain standing out there in the distance. You know, that, that highest peak on a clear day. But as you fly from Charlotte or from Greenville over the mountains, you realize there are a whole series of mountains. Just one after the other. There's all those valleys in between. And so, you know, in my simple mind, I look at that and I think, well, you know, why didn't they just cut, just cut through there and put the interstate and then I could be from here to Greenville, South Carolina when I drive over there in, in about two hours instead of three hours. It would cut an hour off because you just got one mountain to go through. But they'd been in a helicopter before that and they realized that there were about 24, 25 of those mountains to cut through. go through there and there was no water running through there like there was through through the current route that we have on I-40. God sees all that and God's people need to be aware of that even though we don't always see it. Calvin's right, this prophecy shall not be fulfilled until the last coming of Christ. That's when Christ will come. The gospel will have its way. The gospel will, will save all the elect. And on that final day, what's left to be cleaned up, our Savior will clean up. The last enemies will be conquered. They'll be banished. And his people will be, will be given the new heavens and new earth. And so shall devote their grain to the Lord and their wealth to the Lord of the whole earth. It'll all be His. It all is. But on that day, everyone will see that it's His. And it's His to give to His children as He wills. That's the reason Christ blessed us with that wonderful blessing, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. So we look forward to that day. I hope that we, looking back, onto this passage, and we can certainly sympathize, if not empathize, with these people at this time. It would have been hard to see these things. It'd been hard in the middle of the battle, in the middle of the oppression, to 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 to, to understand and to and to have hope, except for this one thing: faith. And so we have not only. An understanding of this historically of what happened they do get taken away they are restored Christ does come his people still suffer and we're looking forward to that great day when Christ comes the second time and so with all that knowledge our faith should be stronger than the people of this day There should be and there is less reason for us to doubt and struggle with hardships and tribulations. Our faith should be fixed on Christ in such a manner that we see that Christ is going to be the the winner. And that all of this will be fulfilled, as Calvin says, at the last coming of Christ. So, in the meantime, how do we live? Listen to this little exchange between evangelist and Christian. I know our children are a uh, number of them. I was told there were seventeen children here on Wednesday night for the uh, the summer series that's going on using Pilgrim's Progress as the theme. And so I, I, I'm guessing several of them are here tonight. So uh, listen, listen. Uh, Christian has veered off the path again, and and uh, evangelist comes and says, "What are you doing here, Christian?" At which words Christian knew not what to say, wherefore at present he stood speechless before him. Then said Evangelist further, Are you not the man I found crying outside the walls of the city of destruction? Yes, dear sir, I am the man. Now, by the way, that was not the first encounter of Evangelist and Christian in a bad situation. Yes, sir. Evangelist uh, said, didn't I direct you on the way to the little wicket gate? The little wicket gate, you know, leads you to to Christ. That's where you want to be. Yes, dear sir, you did. Then evangelist said, give more earnest heed to the things that I shall tell you. I will now show you who it was that deluded you and who it was also to whom he sent you. The man that met you is worldly wise man, and rightly he is called, partly because he savors only the doctrine of this world. You see, the Jews had followed worldly wise man. They'd followed everybody but evangelist. And we can do the same thing if we're not careful. And we can find ourselves in similar predicaments, not nationally as as Israel was here in Micah 4, but as individuals and even as a church, find ourselves in similar situations because we follow our own paths instead of the paths that God set before us in His Word. So tonight, let's, let's let this passage be not only encouraging that God redeems His people, but encouraging in that We don't have to be where Israel was at this time. We know the message. We know the gospel of grace. We know the wicked gate. We know the path. And so let's repent and let's believe God and let's just do those simple things that He's commanded us to do, knowing that He's there, His Spirit's there always, alongside of us. That's part of His work as the paraclete, to be alongside of us, bumping us, back into the path. That way we won't find ourselves like Christian standing outside the wall of destruction or off in the slew of despond. May God give us faith to hear and believe. Father, we ask you to do this for us now. In Jesus'
0: name, amen. Thanks again for listening to this audio sermon from the pulpit of Covenant Presbyterian Church. These sermons are provided for the edification of church members who wish to hear the sermons again, and for those who are providentially hindered from attending our services. We believe the Bible teaches there is no substitute for faithful attendance to worship and membership in a Bible believing evangelical church. If you are in the East Tennessee area, we encourage you to visit our church in Oak Ridge. If you reside elsewhere, We encourage you to seek out a good church in your area. For help in doing so, or if you have any other questions or comments, please contact us at cpcsermons at gmail.com. Again, you may learn more about us by visiting our website, www.covenant-pca.com. Blessings to you.